0: So this morning as we begin, um, as you see in chapter 18, it's important to remember um, how verse 1 of chapter 18 begins where it says, and he told them a parable. Um, the, the point of zeroing in on that right off the bat is helpful to understand that the passage of 18, one through 8, of which we'll look at this morning, um, is still set in the context of the discussion regarding the visible return of Christ. So, keep that in mind as we talk about prayer here, that's still set in the context of a discussion regarding the visible return of Christ. And, and, And a reason for that, as the text moves forward, is because this morning, as we consider ourselves the people of God awaiting that very real return, we understand that we live in what we consider to be in between the times or between the times. That is, we live in between the first advent, which is obvious of what we celebrate at Christmas, and the second advent, his physical visible return. So chapter 17 and 18 are discussing some of these pieces of the visible return, and he tells them something about prayer. So it's important and highly instructive for us this morning as those who live between the advents, the first coming at the incarnation and the visible return at the consummation of history, and somewhere between the Advents, as our pilgrim's journey motors on, he speaks to us about this important aspect of our pilgrim's journey, which is prayer. If you look in chapter 17, just to kind of piece that together, um, there's some prompting here that makes sense to us about why our life needs to um, be disciplined in prayer. Verse 22 of chapter 17 And he said to the disciples, and again, we covered this last week, but he says, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. You see, times are going to get hard. After our Lord ascends in the book of Acts, so, this is, so it moves forward where, in verse 25, before anything happens on this redemptive historical scale of significance of my return, verse 25, I must suffer many things. In particular, I will be rejected by this very generation. Speaking, of course, as we're moving toward Jerusalem, crucifixion. So before, you, before I will return, and, and, and we, we will see a renewed heaven and earth, where heaven and earth actually merge in one dynamic experience. Before this occurs, I must first be rejected by this particular generation. And after our Lord then resurrects and ascends, and you can see the ascension in Acts chapter 1, again, Luke writing both part 1 and part 2 of this narrative story, Luke's gospel, author Luke, and the book of Acts, author Luke, and so it's kind of part 1 and part 2, our Lord ascends in chapter 1, and the angels say, why do you stand here staring into the sky, as he ascended, so will he also descend, he will return. But until that day, there will be many days where life is going to be difficult. So, what ought disciples or Christians do during these very difficult days, perplexing times? Well, the answer is in verse 1 of chapter 18. Because again, he's talking about the return. Of 1737, he said to them. Where, they, they said to him, where, "Where is all this going? Where are these bodies going to go?" He said to them, "Where the corpses, where, where the vultures gather. You won't miss it when it occurs." And then the very next piece he felt necessary to tell you and I, to tell the disciples, he said to them a parable. For what effect? For what purpose? Why is he telling this particular parable? To the effect, to challenge them. To prompt something in them. Prompt what? That they are always to pray and not lose heart. In other words, what are we supposed to do in between the times? In these days, in between the times that are marked by difficulty. We're supposed to be prayerful. Listen to the way that Psalm 62, 8 expresses this idea of the people of God in difficult times. Psalm 62, 8. Trust in him at all times. Right? Living in between the times. Difficult days is going to be the mark of this time period. Th- th- this, this pilgrim's journey is going to be marked by difficulty or difficult times. W- what ought we do? I'm going to tell you this parable to the effect that you ought to always pray. Psalm 62, trust in him. Not some of the time, all of the time. It goes on. Pour out your heart before him. Pour it out. Like, like think of the, 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 the five-gallon uh, pail, bucket, full of water. And you're on cement. And you're taking this water and pouring out. Splash everywhere. Emptying its contents. That visual in your mind. In times of trouble. At all times. Pour out the place of anxiety. It's in your heart. It's on your mind. Pour it out. Why? And even prompts the reason for it. To this effect, Psalm 62, 8, God is a refuge for us. That's why. Pray to him. Pour out. Because he is a refuge for you in days of trouble. and But notice carefully in our text um, something that is implicitly being taught about prayer, of which I know every person in this room feels. It's just, it's, it's human experience. Notice what's being implicitly taught in verse 1. And he told them a parable, right, in the context of the kingdom. To the effect, he wanted to effect change in them, to drive them on, that they ought to do something. They ought always to pray. And here's the piece that's interesting, and not lose heart. Do, Do you see what's being implicitly taught in the very fact that he even mentions, don't lose heart? It implies prayer is hard work. And and no one in here is surprised. It's being implied. the The very fact that he even has to urge us on to the effect that we'll pray always. We get that. Pray always. Yes, we hear Paul also. Pray always rejoicing, giving thanks. Pray always. Yes, yes. And don't lose heart in doing it always. In other words, to do it always is hard work. Don't give up. Every believer experiences this for a number of reasons. Sin enters into our hearts, into our minds, into our actions, and it drives us often away from prayer, not unto the Lord in prayer. Pride is a wedge between us and the humility of We have a sense that we're capable, that we can do. And it drives us away from the humility of request in prayer. For a number of reasons. And our Lord knows our weakness and our frame. And that's why he says, to the effect, I'm going to tell you a parable, to the effect that you ought to pray always, okay, no, 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 not just okay. And don't give up. Because you're going to want to. Different things and competing values are going to come into your mind, come into your heart, come into your emotion, come into your relationships, come into your providence, That is going to work against you. It's going to drive you away. But I'm going to tell you a parable, because you ought to be driven unto me, not away from me. And as you feel things pulling you away, no, 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 no. Don't give up. Pray. Not some of the time, all the time. Calvin reminds us prayer, he says, quote, prayer is the chief exercise of our faith. The chief exercise of our faith. We say, I'm a believer. That's my confession. The Apostles' Creed is indeed my confession. I do believe. The chief exercise of that belief working through love, is prayer. It's not a kind of a a, a tangential element of our faith that sometimes we do go to the Lord prayer, you know, when things get really hot. But it is the essence, the chief exercise of our faith. So with this idea of the importance of prayer from this text in the context of the kingdom, he decides right then and there to tell you, to tell me a parable on prayer so that we won't give up in difficulty of prayer and in the difficulty of living life until he returns. I want us to answer two particular questions this morning regarding prayer. And it's a, I'm going to go about it just a little bit different, uh, a little differently. Um, point number two will actually deal with this particular passage. Um, I want to, like I said, Let me be clear. I want to ask two particular questions this morning. I want you to think on these things with me. Number one is simply this. What is prayer? So as believers, here we have a text that says, I, I want you in Advent... An Advent, living here in what is going to be marked by difficult days where you will feel the weight of your existence, feel the weight of your burdens, feel the weight of the complexity of the age. It will be so taxing on you, you'll long to see the return. And it won't be immediate. What I do want you to do is take those burdens and pray. Take those difficult times and pray. And, and, And not just for a quick minute. Don't give up. Persevere in it. Okay, yes, I will. Um, what is prayer exactly? So we'll, we'll deal with that question. Number one, we'll describe or answer the question, what is prayer? Secondly, and it's kind of like the second part of the um, one very long sermon. I will do my best. I'll keep jamming here to let you know we are a few minutes behind already. But I will catch up. Point number two or question number two is, what are we being taught about God's will in prayer from this text? So so, on the, on the one hand, what is prayer? And that, that's part one. And then part two is, well then, what are we being taught about God's will in prayer from this particular text? So i got to get going. Question number one of two, what is prayer? Just, again the purpose of verse 1. He told them a parable. He told you and me, all of us. He told the disciples in that very moment, talking about the kingdom, he told them a parable. This is why he wanted to tell it to them, Luke. Luke gives us the editorial comment so that we won't miss the point of the parable. It, it, wouldn't that be great if we just had those summaries, every single parable right at the top? Just, this is the point of the parable. Now read on. Um, he does that for us here, perhaps because of the essence and the importance of prayer. Don't miss what he's saying, Luke says. He told them this this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not give up. So the question, what is prayer? Let me offer you a definition, and then we'll build on the definition a little bit, and then we'll hit part two of the sermon. The definition that I would offer you for what prayer is, and and it's very straightforward. Prayer is a response to God's revealed will, expressed to us in the Bible. We got a lot of that. I'm, I'm kind of almost just boiling down the Westminster Shorter Catechism that we looked at this morning. But there is a nuance here involved that I want to draw your attention to. But once again, the definition. What is prayer? Pray always and don't give up. What is prayer? Prayer is a response to God's revealed will, expressed to us in the Bible. That's what prayer is. The term response in the definition is key to the entire idea of the definition. Prayer is a a double-underline response. Let me give you an example of that immediately. We covered this in Luke chapter 11 a few months back. The disciples see the Lord continuously throughout Luke's gospel. Luke frames Jesus often as that man of prayer. You'll see him through review. You can go back through and you'll see Jesus going off to pray. Jesus, before he did this, he's praying. Jesus caught up to do this, he was praying. He spent the entire night before he did this in prayer. So Luke is always framing him as indeed the man of prayer, the man of communion of which we see the disciples observing this in their interactions with the Lord. He's always retreating off, and then he's coming back. As We're waking up. He's coming through the brush. Where have you been all night? Spent the entire night in prayer, Luke tells us. It prompts then the disciples to say to him, Lord, teach us. Remember? Teach us how to pray. You don't need to to learn. You don't need to work at it. Just start saying things. No. Prayer does matter, and prayer is something. Lord, teach us to pray. And then Jesus says to them, well, when you pray, pray like this. He gives them an expression of prayer, an example, some content toward prayer. Pray like this. And do you remember what the first petition of that prayer was. And we, we recited it this morning. Not, hallowed be your name. Because th- that's our entry point, right? You are our Father. Your name ought be reverend. Let it be reverend. In fact, reverend it everywhere as the water covers the sea. Hallowed be your name. But the first petition in there. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done. It's the same Thy will be done is the first petition. What does that mean? But again, prayer is a response, not something I just conjure up, but it is intentionally responsive to God's revealed will expressed to me in the Bible. Your will be done, Jesus says. Pray like this. Pray that God's will be done. Now, when we talk about God's will, we can speak of it on two kind of scales. Of course, if you're thinking of God's will revealed in the Bible, there's a lot to be said there, right? So let's kind of put it into two categories. There's the grand scale, and then we'll speak of it on a more intimate or personal scale. Underneath the one umbrella of thy will, this is your will expressed to me in the Bible, there is the grand scheme of things, and then there is within that kind of the intimate piece or more personal touch to me. On a grand scale, let's consider first, what is prayer but a response to God's revealed will expressed to me in the Bible? What does he want me to pray for? What has he revealed to me that I would come and bring before him? Well, on a grand scale, if I'll give you just three little examples, um, but they're large-scale items that we, the people of God, in between the times ought to pray for. According to the will of God, we ought to pray, number one, for the renewal of all creation and the bringing about of final salvation for his people. This is a prayer request. When you pray, what should I pray? Teach us to pray. Okay, when you pray, pray like this. Thy will be done. Okay, I will. What is your will? That all of creation will be renewed and that final salvation will be brought to my people, Romans 8 pray like that pray for that end when you live in between the times and you're marked by difficult days pray that those days would be renewed that all creation would be renewed let your heart when it looks out and it groans under the weight of the time pray like this father hallowed be your name thy kingdom come thy will let thy will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. That's what prayer is. It is a response to what God has revealed to me that he desires to achieve in the earth. Secondly, he says, uh, pray that Christ's visible reign would be upon the earth. Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. If you were to look at Ephesians 1, 9, and 10, we don't have time to go there. I want to go to one other passage next, but Ephesians 9, chapter 1, 9 and 10. He says, this is the mystery of God's will. This is his will. What he wants, when you say, thy will be done, well, what do you want in your will? The renewal of all things wrong made right. And that will occur, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10, when everything is united into one, underneath the headship and supremacy of one, namely, Christ Jesus. A plan for the fullness of time that he would unite all things on earth and all things in heaven into one unified purpose, the exaltation of the supremacy of only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray to that end. And thirdly, I'll give you just a brief third example. Again, these are, these are on the grand scale of what God's intention is that we, his people, would pray for. Thirdly, my third example was simply that we would pray to the end that all that is detestable and false will be judged. We pray that all that is detestable. What is, how do we determine if something is detestable? How do we determine if something is false? That we would ask that God would come and judge it. Well, if it is opposite his word revealed to me in the Bible. If it's outright against the revealed purposes and will of God, I would pray that you would return and that you would judge that which is detestable and false. It is against thy will and thy kingdom. Uh, Look with me just real quick, just real quick. Look at this um, picture in Revelation. Go to the book of Revelation just for a quick moment. Um, And and look at chapter 21, just briefly, um, I'll quickly read it and we can move on. But Revelation 21, um, there's a lot to note here about the new heaven and the new earth experience of which we are to pray toward this end. Um, It's a beautiful picture in Revelation 21 of which is the hope of the people of God. This is when he tells his disciples, you will long to see this day of the Son of Man return. You will want to see it. You want to feel the reprieve. You want to see the renewal. What should you do with it? Pray about it. Pray that it hasten. Pray that it come. Well, What's so beautiful about it? Um, Begin in verse 5 of chapter 21. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Isn't that beautiful to think? This is the word of the Lord. You see many things broken. We ourselves experiencing brokenness. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Oh, that we would bank on them. And he said to me, It is done. How does he have the authority to say that? Well, because I am the alpha and the omega. I am the beginning and the terminal point. To the thirsty, those who lived in between the times, those through difficulty, to the thirsty, I will give from the spring of water of life. And check it out, without payment. I will nourish you. Verse 7, the one who conquers will have this heritage. There will be many days where you will want to feel the, reprieve, the the relief, the anxiety removed. There are many days, and you won't see it. But I'm going to tell you a parable that you ought to pray for it and pray always. Why? What's held out to me? Verse 7, as a conqueror, as one who endured, you will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, that is, that which is detestable, that which promotes falsehood, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Again, you see the sense of conquering, bestowing, renewing, and also judging. So he says, when you pray, pray like this. Father, hallowed be your name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. And just to press a little further, this is not theoretical, right? It's not like, okay, the theory of the renewed heaven, the renewed earth, where earth and heaven merge and we have a brand new renewed experience on the earth. Um, ah, It's hard to wrap my mind around. That's theoretical. The supremacy of Christ where all heaven and all of earth unite into one head whose glory is shown as the water covers the sea, and we experience a totally different dimension of renewal again kind of theoretical hard to wrap my mind around much even harder to pray for its end let me challenge you just for a moment because it's true it does feel hard we must gaze it through the eyes of faith it is challenging but being here on lord's day hearing it afresh is the means whereby we can be renewed to seek it yet again not as theory but as truth not as theory but as practice Pray for these things. Graham Goldsworthy writes, quote, prayer is part of the whole process God has chosen to use, right? Think about your prayers in the scheme of things as functional, not a theory, not words going out into the air, not praying in isolation to no effect. Prayer is part of the whole process God has chosen to use, In order to carry out his plan for the entire universe. End quote. Your prayer time matters. It's what God uses. They're not. Is that just going up and disappearing? He's not telling us a parable to pray always because prayer doesn't have an effect, or it's some sort of psychological detox. Or if we just pray enough and we talk about it out loud, that's really what it is. It's just a form of renewal psychology. Or if we speak out loud about it, don't you feel so much better now? And he's like, yeah, just do that always and don't give up. No, it's the means whereby he uses to change and bring about his outcomes. This grand scale is everywhere in 17 and 18 that we would pray for the coming of the kingdom. My time is getting burned. I got to move on. The next portion, as you consider a grand scheme, consider it just as an intimate scale as well. So from the grand to the intimate. Again, if we were to ask Jesus, Jesus, teach us to pray. How do we pray? He says, pray like this. And if you went through the Lord's Prayer, let me give you three examples once again of, of simple pieces of what does it mean to pray? Um, According to God's will is revealed to me in the Bible. Jesus says, pray like this. And and how many of us do? Pray, give us this day our daily bread. How, How should I pray? I'll tell you how. Pray like this. Give us this day our spiritual and physical nourishment. Do you start as a family? Do you start there in the morning? As a couple? Do you start there in the morning? Give us this day. Right before us, this 24-hour cycle, give us this day before it begins, as the sun is rising, before it begins, give to us. Not that we're just going to take it on, not that we're going to plow through it. I'm asking humbly, Lord, Father, whose name shall be hallowed, whose will I desire to be done, you have asked me to come to you this morning to ask of your resources to provide for me my physical and spiritual nourishment. Give to me. My daily bread. Give our family, our children, their daily bread. Another example would be to ask for wisdom and in intimacy. <clears throat> wisdom in all circumstances. And you think, isn't this a little bit low key, a minor key to hit that we'd ask for wisdom? Shouldn't we just figure out and untie the ball of yarn? James 1 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, and Jesus implies, again, or outright states in 17, chapter 17 here, difficult days are coming. That means it will be taxing in a number of ways. It will be difficult days emotionally. It will be difficult days uh, psychologically. It will be difficult days relationally. It will be difficult days financially. There will be difficult days provisionarily. Like, what what will I have? What will I eat? What are the pieces that I'll have in my home? Difficult days are coming. You will, in other words, lack wisdom. Do I go left, do I go right, do I go up, do I go down? How do I face this? Or how do we as a couple, me and my wife, how do we face this? How do we and the train of the children that travel with us? How do we face this? How can I lead? In other words, you will lack wisdom. How many of you now even think, what is God's will for my life? What direction am I going? Multiple degree programs represented in the room. Is this what God has for me? Is it not what he has for me? How do I know what he has for me? What is his call on my life? I need wisdom. Well, glad you're here, James says. James 1, five. If any of you lack wisdom, if anybody's in that category then of needing wisdom, what should they do? Well, I'll tell you. Let him ask God. Pray. I'm going to tell you a parable so that you will pray and not give up. Because you're going to lack wisdom. Well, what should I do? You ought to ask God for it. What is the promise attached if I humble myself and I ask for wisdom, admitting my own ignorance and dependency on you? Well, James 1.5, I will give it generously to all without reproach. Let him ask, and it will be given to him. I need wisdom great ask. How much will he give and yield over my lifetime? Much. Will I feel stupid in asking? No, he doesn't reproach you for coming. He asks you, come. I will generously bestow wisdom Again, the third example is um, on that intimate scale of prayer being a response to God's revealed will expressed to me in the Bible, what is his will? How, to, how, how should I pray? Well, when you pray, pray like this. Pray for health and overall well-being. Again, isn't that just kind of too internalized and too personal to ask for something as seemingly so simple as, well, I'm not feeling well and I feel imbalanced, should I really make that a piece of my prayer life? Yes. No, I thought I'm supposed to pray that like Christ would return and renew the world. You know, those kind of things. I, you know, my ailments don't seem to... No, it, they're not disconnected. Those two things are connected in your prayer life. That he desires you to experience well-being and health and renewal. James 5.13 This is so simple, isn't it? It's a great, James 5.13, to to all of us this morning hearing about prayer, James prompts this this comment of chapter 5, verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Again, it's not just that you have uh, physical ailments and infirmities. It can be a number of different things to the complexity of being human. And it's on a range of scales. What might seem to be suffering for you, I might look at and think, that's not really suffering. What I experience and think well, that doesn't really seem to me to be suffering. Uh, uh, again, but it is to the one undergoing it. Is any one of you suffering? James says, let him pray. Teach him to pray. When you pray, pray like this. Ask of God that it might be given. So to conclude um, kind of the definition to point or part number one, because we are moving now into part number two, I ask the question, what is prayer? And I, I'm going to simplify the final definition from what we've built on in the grand scale in the finer or more intimate scale. And that is simply this. Um, perhaps you've heard it. It's rather... On the popular side, um, and I think helpful, and that is prayer, is thinking God's thoughts after Him. Right? There's revelation to respond to in prayer. When you pray, pray like this. Prayer is thinking God's thoughts back to him that he's revealed to me in his word. Now to the parable. The second question this morning, and it won't take as long as point one in case you're concerned. Um, The second question is, once again, what are we being taught about God's will for us in prayer from this particular text? Let's look at the text beginning in verse two. He, uh, He said... In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. I'm going to tell you a parable to the effect that you ought to always pray and not lose heart. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to paint this picture. So so think about praying always and not losing heart. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city also who kept coming to him and saying, Give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Isn't that interesting? Like Luke said at the beginning of the parable, he doesn't fear God or respect man. One verse later he says, Though I neither fear God nor respect man. Right? So just Luke saying, Do you see the picture here? Don't miss that piece. Yet, because, this is verse 5, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me up. That's actually the term that's being translated, beat me down. The term translated there actually means uh, to blacken the eye, to beat and wear down. He's a little bit concerned. Perhaps he leaves the judge's chambers and the widow meets him in the alley. Lest this happen to me, by her constant coming. He probably would rather be beaten by the widow than the constant drum of give me justice. Verse 6, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says? Now, Now you have a picture of this judge. He neither feared God nor respected man. I neither fear God nor do I respect man. Right on key. And then Jesus summarizes, he is an unrighteous judge. This guy is bad news. Verse 7, and then we'll jump into just a couple observations and be done. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I'm asking a very specific question here in the parable, and that is simply this. What are we being taught in that parable about God's will for us in prayer? And the answer is this, God delights in answering persistent prayer. God delights in answering persistent prayer. Let me show you in our last couple of moments how. Just quickly jump into the particulars. Look at the woman in the, in, in, in the parable. And she is kind of the symbol of the people of God. She is the symbol of us. Right? So the widow or the people of God will find themselves in terribly difficult places. Consider her particular difficulties as she stands as sign and symbol of the people of God. I want to tell you this parable so that you, you guys, will pray always and you won't give up when times are difficult. So I'm going to tell you a parable about a woman who prayed and didn't give up, who was in a very difficult situation. I'll tell you a parable about a widow that's you, that's you guys, that's me, that's us, the people, the widow. How is she so disadvantaged? We'll consider in that context, we've gone over it in different texts, but she has zero headship in her home of physical provisions to give to her. You notice someone praying for, give me this day my daily bread, the widow. She has no outside representation. There's a dispute. In this dispute, she would not be honored as she approaches the judge. Her husband or that male figure would then be the one who arbitrates. I'm going to tell you a story so that you will understand. You are going to have difficulty like the widow. But like the widow who persevered, I want you to keep praying and don't give up. Someone is unjustly suing the widow also. If you notice in the text just briefly, she says, um, she says uh, uh, though I neither, uh, where is it? Uh, oh, yeah, right in verse 3. And the widow in that city kept coming to him and said, Give me justice against my adversary. So someone is taking um, advantage of a very vulnerable woman. She is being unjustly pursued legally by someone in the, in, in the parable. So she's in a very difficult position. The judge has zero regard for her, and someone is attacking her. The point is, she is in a very difficult, difficult situation. To top it all off, the the, the most heinous part of the entire parable picture is that the judge is that man who says, I don't fear God or love neighbor. I don't fear God or love neighbor. And Christ says, he was an unrighteous judge. Think about it for just briefly for a quick moment. The law that he was to adjudicate to this woman Here's the person pursuing her. Here's the woman who's the widow at disadvantage. Here's the judge who is to arbitrate is the law of God. What shot does she have at justice at appealing to the law of God when a judge says, "I don't fear God, lady." Well, you're supposed to love God and love the neighbor. Okay? I don't fear God and I don't love my neighbor. Well, God says, again, what difference does that make? I don't fear God. You see, she drew the short straw. The, the judge over her district doesn't love God and doesn't care for neighbor. What chance does the widow have at seeing any form of justice? I'm going to tell you a parable so that, so that you will persevere in prayer because you're going to have difficult times. What more difficult picture could I paint for you than a widow who has a godless judge, who someone is pursuing her, and she appeals to him on God's law to adjudicate it properly for her and bring justice, and the judge turns and says, I don't love God, and I don't care about the neighbors. Oh, what can I do? How will I get justice? Well, notice verse 5. This is how. Yet, because this widow keeps bothering me. I will give her justice just so that she'll leave me alone. Right? So that she will not beat me down where they're constant coming at me about justice. In other words, the widow prevailed because she was persistent. I'm going to tell you, what does that have to do with, oh, Supposed to be persistent in prayer because days are going to be difficult and we're going to want to give up. But the widow is seen as one who prevailed upon the judge and received justice precisely because she persevered and didn't give up. She had no other options. Everything was off the table for her. She could only do one thing, and that is persist to be heard. Finally, the unrighteous judge says, "Ah, oh, my word, this darn crazy lady. I still don't fear God, and I still don't care for my neighbor, but just to self-preserve, I'm going to give her what she needs so she'll go away. Jesus says, think about that. The judge is unjust. What do you think your prayers are like? Your persistent prayers. How do you think they're received? Not from an unrighteous judge, but from your father. This is how the text concludes. Verse seven, or six, and the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. He's unrighteous and he granted justice just because of perseverance. Don't quit guys. Don't quit on your prayers. Verse 7 Will not God who is all things opposite the judge he is righteous he loves righteousness he loves justice and he loves his people will not that God grant justice to his elect? But what all they do? Cry to him. I'm going to tell you a parable so that you'll pray and you won't give up. In fact, cry to him day and night. Keep going. You're being heard. It's affecting change. Persist. Look at the final word. And He won't delay over you long. The final comment of the text, I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Receive that in faith. Nevertheless, this is the challenge living in between the times. When the Son of Man does appear, will he find persevering faith on the earth? Will we be persistent as his people? Will we pray with tenacity? Give us this day our daily bread. Bring about renewal. Please hear me and forgive me. I'm repentant. Give that to me. Renew, wash, heal my marriage, heal my children, strengthen our bond, grow our church, continue to spread your gospel, heal those who are infirmed, do thy will. I'm going to tell you a parable because you're going to be burdened, and I want you to pray, thy will be done, and don't give up. Father, we pray that you would help us to endure.